Welcome to Climate News Weekly. I'm here with Darren and Julio. Welcome, guys. Good to see you again. Always a treat. Likewise. Our lineup of stories this week is going to begin with this story about EVs and cold weather. This is a perennial favorite. We see this story every single year. It's always basically the same. But this year, it feels like it's getting a little bit more attention than usual. Darren, what is the gist of EVs and cold weather? Absolutely. It's just worth touching upon this for a few minutes because it's made so many news cycles. And as you mentioned, this is something that does seem to pop up every year. But the reason I think it's getting more attention now is because so many more people have adopted EVs. So some of the issues you've seen have been exacerbated. Now, just to make some things clear up front, you know, some people might say, hey, this is a anti-EV kind of propaganda campaign and other people might say oh there's really nothing you know and and there's nothing wrong with evs other people might say oh no this is why we can't move to evs i just want to make clear that neither of those are really the case i think there is a real challenge with evs in cold weather that people have to acknowledge but also that there are a lot of pragmatic uh relatively straightforward things that can be done to mitigate and resolve these issues so what is happening here at the end of the day i think let's talk about the physical facts first one is that evs do have uh, diminished performance and range in cold weather. That being said, I want to put it into context. All cars have diminished range of performance in cold weather. I think the reason why it's been a bigger issue for EVs is because A, it's top of consciousness, it's new technology, and the range to start off with is less than most uh, gasoline cars. So when we see a reduction in range, it, it is more salient in our minds. But what is actually happening here on a physical level the reason why these EVs have less range are a, a few bold. The first one is there are more energy draws on it. You know, if you're turning up your heater, if you have to warm up your battery so you don't stress it, that's going to consume more energy out of that battery, which means that your effective range for actually moving you from point A to point B is going to be reduced. The other thing to keep in mind is that when it's cold, the battery chemistry needs to protect itself to keep the consumer safe. And one of the ways it does that is to avoid what's called lithium plating. So if you try to charge or discharge too quickly, the lithium ions basically can't move into the anode or cathode quickly enough, and then it ends up plating on either side. And that can be dangerous because it can cause shorts. So that's why electric vehicles will actually slow down the rate of charging to make sure that it avoids that phenomenon. But what that means is, okay, you have diminished range, you show up to an electric vehicle charger. Instead of taking 20, 25 minutes to charge, it might take you 30, 35 minutes. Now, multiply that by 10, 20, 50 drivers in a day, you start seeing longer lines. Then the second thing to keep in mind is just consumer behavior. As I mentioned from the get-go, you have more vehicles and more ad- adoption of EVs. So you're going to have more EVs needing to charge. And unfortunately, charging infrastructure this year has really fallen under estimates of what people wanted to have. I think we are, Bloomberg NEF said it's like about 75% below estimates for installations this year. So if you have all these new EVs, but charging infrastructure hasn't kept pace, you can just see why that would cause more of a bottleneck. I admit that the technology should get better and that people shouldn't have to be thinking about this all the time, or at least every winter. But the fact is, with some very basic things, you can overcome this. And some simple things like using your seat warmer and your steering wheel heater rather than heating the entire cabin for one person. Uh, I just want to add quickly, there's another reason why I think this has gotten a lot of coverage this week. Uh, We had a big nationwide cold spell. We haven't had one of those for a couple of years. The overwhelming majority of the United States is in sub-zero weather. It's really cold. 
And so it is geographically wider. It's not just that people are, are adopting more EVs, which I agree. It is also that cold weather is hitting everybody right now. So doing a story on cold weather makes sense. Yeah. So we have another story. British power plant operator Drax announced earlier this week that the British government approved its application to convert two large power producing facilities to add carbon capture to those facilities. And so who better to have here to talk about this than our carbon capture and storage expert, Julio. Julio, tell us about Drax, these facilities, and what are they going to do with the carbon dioxide once they capture it? So for those audience members who are not you know, deeply into British power politics, Drax was Britain's largest coal-fired power plant. Now it is their largest biomass plant. It produces about 4% of Britain's electricity and 9% of their renewable electricity. This is also a plant that people love to hate and a company that people love to hate because there are questions around the sourcing of their biomass, specifically their wood pellets. And they have tried very hard over the years to demonstrate that they are entirely sustainably sourced, that they're not adding to deforestation and so forth. But they occasionally get caught. Recently, there was an expose by the BBC that showed them cutting down virgin forest in British Columbia to make wood pellets for the plant. Now, the British government has been planning to do carbon capture and storage hubs for many, many years. Drax is in the biggest of these hubs, the Humber Cluster. In addition, the British government has been making increasingly ambitious climate targets. And as part of that, they need zero and negative carbon emissions. So the British government has given the green light to this very big project. And the thing that stands out about it is that it's so big. Because it is so big, it costs a lot of money. So Drax is putting up two and a half billion pounds. Environmental groups estimate that if the entire facility were retrofit, it could cost as much as 40 billion pounds, which is a lot of money. But actually, if you look at it in terms of the total abatement, it looks like 8 million tons a year of CO2 removal, which is a very large volume of CO2 removal as well. And I want to be clear about this. It is proper CO2 removal. Explain what that means when you differentiate between proper CO2 removal and, let's say, improper CO2 removal. The amount of CO2 that is removed is highly contingent on the land use impacts associated with the biomass. Okay. So the carbon capture facility takes CO2 and puts it underground forever. And the biomass takes CO2 out of the air. And in sustainable harvesting, it's like a conveyor belt. CO2 goes from the air into the woody biomass. The woody biomass is consumed into electricity and the CO2 goes underground. So it's very straightforward. If you do the biomass part poorly, you can have either very small returns or even emit more, right? And so that is where the crux of the biscuit is. It's not on does this plant do its job, it's is this biomass sustainably sourced? And that is not easy. That is hard to sort out. So Julio, can you say a little more about that? What would good sourcing look like and what does bad sourcing look like? Right. So Europe has been doing wood pelleting for a while, so we have information on this. An example of a good project is this Microsoft Ersted project in Denmark, where there is locally sourced woody biomass that's left over from forestry operations and wood and paper mills and stuff like that. The Danish government tracks the volumes of that quite closely. Some of it comes in from other forests around Europe. But again, they, they just do a very clear job of demonstrating that they're picking up stuff like sawdust, bark, stuff that is not actually timber, right? 
poorly sourced biomass is when one of those pelleting facilities suddenly has a shortfall and they can't make their volumes. And suddenly they're like, well, I guess we'll just chop down 20 trees. And then everybody's like, wait a second, you said this was sustainably sourced biomass. And it takes a long time for those trees to grow back. By the way, for your listeners who are interested in Carbon Direct wrote a report on guidelines for sustainable biomass harvesting. And we lay out the principles of all this stuff. You can go to our website, carbon-direct.com. So we've covered elements of this next story in the Financial Times. U.S. energy demand is growing, and this is due to a variety of factors, including electrification, you know, EVs, more industrial activity occurring onshore within U.S. borders, and of course, uh, the boom in demand from data centers that are doing AI processing, as well as all the other kinds of processing that happen in data centers. So there's more demand. What are the consequences of that? Right. So from a historical perspective, for many, many years, U.S. electricity demand was flat. Mm -hmm. So if you shut down a dirty plant, you were bringing in a clean plant and it all worked. Now we are seeing what many people predicted for years, a big surge in demand. It's vehicle electrification, industrial applications, industrial electrification, the ever-present demand for heat pumps that's growing, and importantly, IT. Things like data farms are, are cropping up everywhere and drawing this. And when we have cold weather like we did in Texas last week, we see surges in the demand. When we have hot weather, like we saw last summer, we see surges in the demand. And the grid is starting to become unstable around this. And it's a problem. Add that to a related sort of set of facts, which is that the interconnection queue to add new power demand is wildly backed up. Berkeley put out a report last week that showed that well over a thousand solar installations are just sitting around waiting to get hooked up. Like we got real issues. So the demand is spiking. The grid infrastructure is not being built out. And we are not adding green electricity to the queue at anywhere near the rate or pace we need. Again, every week is infrastructure week, my friends. And unless we actually add the clean power supplies and the transmission infrastructure that we need, this is going to become really bad. Julio just mentioned a lot of the macro issues. I just want to touch on some of the tactical micro issues and implications on the ground because we've seen this a lot in the EV charging world. Number one, you're seeing that folks are relying more and more on kind of distributed generation. And while people in the clean tech space might see distributed generation as you know wind, solar, batteries, most of the time to get the power levels you need for things like EV charging and data centers, that means diesel, compressed natural gas, et cetera. We have a couple of companies that sell these sorts of solutions that have told me that the next coming several years are like boom years for them. They, they're going to see so much business and they're excited about it because the utilities are not upgrading the lines in time for the loads that need to uh, come online. Right. The other thing that's interesting is we're seeing really long lead times for things like transformers and switch gears. For transformers, sometimes you know two to three years. I know supply chain has kind of gone a little bit out of people's day-to-day -day consciousness, but this is still an issue for something that has a very secular growth pattern. And one of the, you know, we can dive into the details of that, but one of the things that's just true is that we don't have a lot of like utility scale transformer manufacturing capacity here in the U.S. A lot of it is out in, you know, Southeast Asia. We farmed it out and those manufacturing lines are backlogged. Thanks very much, Darren and Julio, for joining us. 
For today's Climate News Weekly, we were also joined by Julian Spector, a reporter at Canary Media who's been covering what's happening right now with Hawaii's energy grid, including Oahu's groundbreaking virtual power plant program. A virtual power plant, much like a regular power plant, provides electricity to the grid. But instead of being in one central location, a virtual power plant relies on distributed energy resources like home batteries, for example, or solar panels, and even electric vehicles for its power. If you want to learn more, we actually just published an episode on virtual power plants last week. You can find it on our website, climatenow.com. In the meantime, here's Julian Spector for Canary Media. Julian, welcome. Great to have you here. Hi, James. Glad to be with you. So we've covered the topic of energy storage, both distributed and utility scale, and we've talked about different kinds of battery technologies that are both in use and hopefully coming online soon. And we've talked on sort of the macro scale, you know, system-wide. Julian's published a couple of stories recently and has delved deeply into one sort of local context and uh, tracking how this story is evolving. And as we know, the energy transition is a local story. So we thought, you know, it'd be interesting to explore like one specific context. So Julian, your focus has been Hawaii and the interplay between distributed solar generation, distributed energy storage and grid scale storage. Can you tell us what's going on in Hawaii and and how things are unfolding there? Absolutely. So as a reporter for Canary Media, my job is more or less to look around the world for first of a kind projects, things that push the boundaries of what's possible in shifting from fossil fuels to to a cleaner energy system. And uh, Hawaii's just really been at the forefront of that for years. They were actually the first state to pass a law to phase out fossil fuels from the electricity system. They, that was 2015. And so the specific context I've been following there over the last few years is they needed to shut down this coal plant. It was run by the, the power producer company AES on the west side of Oahu, which is the most populous island, not the biggest in size, but, you know, a million-ish people living there. Um, so very important home in the middle of the Pacific. And the, uh, the coal plant was the largest power plant on the island. They've been, you know, running around the clock for 30 years. So you're shutting down the coal power, building a whole network of renewable generation with batteries to store it and and shift it into, you know, whenever you need it. This battery is going to be doing things batteries have never done before because it's taking on kind of this lead role in in keeping the island grid running smoothly. And then, uh, yeah, they had some sort of unexpected turbulence al- along the way. And so what is the situation now? There was this kind of moment of response from the the, the Hawaii energy community. You know, the, the regulators were really working with the utility and the developers to try to fast track things. They managed to, you know, get through the coal shutdown without major grid disruptions, got some emergency help from a few solar projects that were able to speed up and, and show up in, uh, in time for the, the shutdown and then actually started paying home batteries, the uh, homeowners to like add a battery and store their solar and share that with the grid at night. And then this December, the large-scale battery at Capole Energy Storage came online and it's, it's up and running. And to give you a sense of the scale, it it's got the basically the same capacity as the coal plant had. So the coal plant was 180 megawatts, and this battery has 185 megawatts. The peak demand for the island is about 1,100 megawatts. So this is like 
very significant in terms of the scale of the grid, like how big a role it plays on the grid. Just to reiterate, we're talking about a, a million people or so that are served by this, by the new system. Yeah. So that's a lot. Absolutely. And so what's new for the energy transition is we basically never needed a battery to take on this kind of pivotal role for a grid in the sense that without the coal plant, you, you need something to provide these services that keep the grid operating smoothly. And so what the developer plus power did here was actually design a, a massive battery. They're using Tesla mega pack batteries. And even if the, if the whole grid goes down in like a, you know, massive storm or earthquake or tsunami or something, this battery is designed to jumpstart the grid afterwards and kind of return power to the island. Got it. So it's pretty impressive on the whole that this is happening. Julian, it's been really great to have you. This has been really interesting. And thank you for for diving into this and for all your work at Canary Media. Listeners, if you'd like to read some of Julian's work, we have linked to his stories in the transcripts on the website. So please check it out. There's a lot more details that Julian gets into in those articles. So thanks again. And that covers it for this week's Climate News Weekly. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Climate Now is made possible in part by our science partners like the Livermore Lab Foundation. The Livermore Lab Foundation supports climate research and carbon cleanup initiatives at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which is a Department of Energy Applied Science and Research facility. More information on the Foundation's climate work can be found at livermorelabfoundation.org.